Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Haley Armagita, who's going to be sharing with us about her new article, The Benefits of Non-Traditional Assessments for Historical Thinking, which was recently published in Teaching History, Volume 47. Welcome to the show, Haley. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so glad that you're here and we get to talk about your article and what inspired you to write it. But before we dive into all of that, will you please tell us about yourself? Um, Sure. I am 32 years old. I was a non-traditional student at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. I just graduated in December with my bachelor's in history. Um, and I, I attended Ball State previously about 10 years ago. Um, and, you know, I just kind of wrapped that up in an associates because I changed my major a bunch of times. I didn't really know what I was doing there at the time. And I'm glad I did that because then it was easier for me to kind of jump back into the bachelor's once I figured out what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> it's always interesting to hear about people's experiences through um, higher ed and how it went for them. Mm-hmm. So you started as an undergrad in 2009? Yes. And what did you think you wanted to study at that point? Um, so I started out actually as a theater major, <laughs> um, but then I didn't get into the acting program in Ball State. And, you know, I was a huge drama nerd when I was in high school um, and in middle school, and I did community theater and everything, but it just kind of became apparent that my life was beginning to move in a different direction. So then I tried switching to hospitality because I'd worked in food and beverage for a long time wasn't crazy about that. And then I switched to entrepreneurship. Wasn't crazy about that. Um, And then I did um, join the education department at one point uh, then there too. But, you know, I think I just wasn't ready to be a college student, you know? Um, But yeah, so I had enough core credits that I was actually able to pretty easily get that associate's degree because I went to Ball State for four years. I just didn't go in any one direction long enough, (laughs) you know? Um, but yeah, so then I started again in the summer of 2020. So all of my new classes that I started were remote for the first couple semesters that I was there. And you had several different experiences as a student when you were an undergrad, originally you were in person, but then you had some time online in 2016 working on your degree as well. And that experience was even different than when you came back in summer 2020 and so much was online again. Yes. So in 2016, I, that's when I finished up that associates, um, took a couple years off and then realized I only needed two more classes to get an associates. Um, and so then in 2016, I was living actually in Denver, Colorado, no longer in Indiana. Um, and so I just, decided to pick a couple of online classes through Ball State so then I could finish that. It is one of the great things about things going remote or schools opening up what they teach face-to-face to solely online classes is that we're a fairly mobile society and even more so in the last few years. But even in 2016, if those things hadn't been available online, it would have been a lot more bureaucratic paperwork and whatnot for you to transfer your credits somewhere locally and try to finish your associates. 
yeah. Yeah. I'm glad I was able to do that. And that it was a, you know, a day and age where I was able to take those online classes and wrap it all up because otherwise I probably never would have finished it. And when you came back in 2020, is that when you knew you wanted to focus on history? Yes. Well, I started out actually in the social studies education department. Um, but then through taking all of those social studies focused classes, I realized like my main passion actually is history. Um, I do intend on getting my master's here within the next few years, but I'm, I'm just taking time off now because we're moving back to Colorado. So, <laughs> um, which is exciting, but well, I know that right now you're sitting in the midst of half-packed belongings because yes. you really are moving soon. Yes. And when you get settled, you want to work on your master's degree. Do you think it'll be a master's in teaching so that you can take what you've learned and implement it in the K-12 to level of classrooms? Well, I, I think I'll actually um, do a master's in history. I, I'm moving towards more like a fo of a focus on higher education. I think I'd like to teach maybe even at community colleges or something to that effect. Um, I, you know, the public education system in America is just kind of worrying to me at the moment. I'm, <laughs> I'm not totally sure, at, you know, how deeply I want to participate in that at this time. And with a master's degree, you don't have to make such a hard decision. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of leads to your article about the benefits of non-traditional assessment for historical thinking, which was published in the Open Access Journal Teaching History. In it, you take us through some of your educational journey, and you take us to some very interesting projects that you started working on when you returned uh, to school to finish uh, your bachelor's degree. Um and in it, you do express your concerns about a little bit about what's going on with history and, and making sure that we make it more accessible to the public. Can you talk to us about why you're passionate about non-traditional assessments for historical thinking? Well, when I went to Ball State previously, there was much more of a focus on traditional forms of assessment, which would be you know, your research papers, your final exams, your essays, um, maybe a group project where you make a PowerPoint presentation, you know, but for the most part, it wasn't very public facing. It wasn't easily shared with other people. Um, and then so in my new experience at Ball State, the non-traditional forms of assessment that I'm seeing more of would be like making a podcast episode, or I've even done a project where we made a documentary there and, um, you know, contributed to an online database with our, our research. Um, so there's a lot more focus, I feel now, on making sure that these projects then can become public facing so that, you know, we can actually share the work that we've done in um, a more well-rounded way. So I think that's really interesting. And so something that really inspired you was a course that you were in that was taught by Dr. De Silva, a World Civilizations One class. Can you tell us about that class and what got you so passionate about podcasting and, and public presentations of knowledge? 
Yes. So Dr. De Silva, um, she was teaching World Civilizations one, and that was my first semester where I was actually back on campus too. So um, my first semester was remote because of COVID. And then the second semester, we had a few in-person classes and then other classes were still remote. Um, and hers was one of my in-person classes. And we, the main goal of the course was to create two podcast episodes based on research that we did on a different historical artifact. I did one episode on a Bodhisattva statue from 600 CE in China. And then I did another episode on a bust of the Mexica god of the flayed skin, Shipei Totec. <laughs> um, and both were completely different artifacts, but it was just really cool the way she led us through the process of historical thinking. Um, you know, she kind of made me realize that it's a formula that you actually go through, you know, sourcing questions, um, finding out the date the artifact was created, its place of origin, who could have created it, for what purpose, um, to the type of evidence that the artifact was, like a statue, and the known context, you know, like what was going on in the world at that time, why would someone make this, and what was its significance, and so we would contextualize that with secondary sources also, um, like an article about, you know, 6th century China or something like that. So it was really interesting to go through it and realize that doing history is a lot different than, you know, the history or social studies classes we might take at the secondary level. As I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking about museum school trips that I took as a kid. And those were the questions I would ask. What did it do? Why would you want one? And it's interesting because kids can get shut down with those questions. Like, Shh, just listen, they're going to tell you, um, you know, it's made out of clay and it's 500 years old. And that didn't answer my question at all. I wanted to know, what was it? What did it do? Why did people want one? What did they think of it? And when we teach history at the higher ed level. Those are the questions that you really need to go back to. Yes. Yeah. And it, it was cool. We actually got to go to on Ball State's campus. There is a museum um, called the David Owsley Museum of Art, and they have a huge selection of historical artifacts on display also. So we actually had to pick an artifact that was displayed in the museum and we had to go to the museum and actually look at it and study it before we made the podcast episode. Will the museum now be using your podcasts as helping the public engage with the artifacts? Is that one of the goals of the project? I don't believe so, no. But Dr. De Silva, um, you know, has asked permission to use my podcast episode as, as an example for future classes. Um, but no, I don't believe that the museum's doing anything with that. I hope they will. That would be cool. <laughs> As museums are coming up with more ways to engage the public, you know? Yeah, that, I, that would be interesting because, you know, I, I was in a class of 25 people and she does the class every semester. So I, or maybe every other semester, um, but, you know, it could be cool for them to maybe have access to those. Actually, I'd never really thought about that before. 
And one thing you studied in order to create your own podcasts were um, some that had been created by the director of the British Museum. Is that right? Yes. Uh, but I'm trying to remember his name. It was Neil McGregor. He was the director of the British Museum, and his podcast is called A History of the World in 100 Objects. And so each episode centers around one historical artifact where he does a deep dive on you know, those sourcing questions that I discussed previously. Did he or did you consider how the object then came to be housed at the museum where you found it? Hmm. Not really. And that, you know, that would be a good question for the British Museum, too, because some of their, uh, many of their artifacts are there questionably, so... <laughs> I think it's one of the great reckonings that museums are a little delayed on doing. Yes. And why I, do we have this? We've determined what it is, why they made it, how they made it, how they right. used it. Why is it here? Yeah. But how did we get it? Yeah. Um, I, I do see also um, just in a few different conversations I've been able to sit in on um, and different webinars and stuff that I've been able to have access to. I do think there is a huge push towards, you know, how do we repatriate these items in a way that, you know, the donors who gave them to the museum are satisfied. The people who are receiving the artifacts back are satisfied. Um, you know, there's a lot of red tape surrounding that, but I think as, you know, as younger generations join the field of history, I think that we will see, you know, more of a push towards that in a way that will be a little bit more diplomatic and, you know, we'll get, people talking about things and not just pointing fingers and arguing because that doesn't actually get people their artifacts back, you know? <laughs> so when you were doing this project, you talked about how it was a bit daunting, um, but that Dr. De Silva really provided scaffolding um, for this class where you were going to be making these podcasts. And this was your midterm and your final, is that right? To create these podcasts. So it was really going beyond the traditional sit down at your desk and you're going to write for three hours to teach, you know, to show everything that I've taught you this semester. You're going to demonstrate through this tangible project that you've made, but just turning students loose to pursue a passion in a, in a creative project can be uh, have very mixed results. And so one thing Dr. De Silva did was she really gave a lot of scaffolding for how you can successfully go about this way of doing your project, which many students, you know, don't arrive at college with experience and they got very good at getting ready for the AP test or impressing their honors history teacher, but they didn't get to do this type of work. So how did she scaffold you? So we had several different assignments throughout the semester that were, you know, not as heavily weighted as the midterm and the final, obviously, but um, just kind of practicing answering those sourcing questions for different artifacts. You know, we studied artifacts from all over the world, um, the ancient civilizations of Mesopotamia, Egypt, China, the Mediterranean, Africa, um, North America. You know, we were kind of all over the map in terms of where these artifacts were found and you know she would provide sometimes just a picture with a date and then based on other information we'd learned in class we had to determine the answers to all of those sourcing questions like the um 
like the day the artifact was created, the place of origin, who created it and for what purpose, stuff like that. And just getting to do that practice um, then brought us to a point for those podcast episodes where we were better able to articulate, you know, how we found that information, what it means and, you know, how we can present it to other people. In your article, you talk about how this was one of the most useful learning experiences that you had, that you answered questions using the historical thinking process, but also this is the first time the historical thinking process really seemed to make sense to you. You applied it to something, you could see how you were using it. It sounds like the other forms of assessment that you've gone through had really valued passive learning. Yeah, I mean, I, I think at the at the secondary level, especially, um, and early on in undergrad, I, you know, I previously felt like there was just a lot more focus on name and date regurgitation, um, maybe a little bit of focus on historical context, but not really a whole lot of deep information that resonates with a lot of people that you know, makes them want to learn more about a certain subject. Like it, it doesn't really matter the exact date that something happened. I think it matters more what, you know, how that plays into the larger picture of world history. Do you think part of why this was very active learning for you was you got to choose your artifacts? So many syllabi that were handed is you will learn this on this date and you will prove that you've learned it by that date and then you'll move on to learning this on this date and that there's not a menu anywhere on the syllabus where you get to choose various things that you want to learn so you can demonstrate that you met the objectives of the course but this class really let you do that yeah yeah it was um I'm sorry, could you repeat the original question? It was more of a thought cloud than a question, gotcha. so it's not your fault. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering about how the value of choice in this class uh, affected your active learning. Okay, yeah. Um, it, it was cool. I mean, obviously, we couldn't pick just any artifact in the whole world. And we did have, you know, for each podcast, we had to pick an artifact from that specific region of the world that we were studying in that unit. So for the Bodhisattva statue, obviously that was in our unit on ancient China. Um, for the Shipei Totec, that was in, on our unit in Mesoamerica. Um, so we were given some confines that we had to stick, stick to, but um, yeah, for, for the most part, we, you know, we got to choose from, you know, very large collection that they have there for, for a state school in Indiana. I'm, I'm always really impressed when I go in there, the amount of artifacts that they've been able to curate and have there for their students. It's actually really awesome. But um, it was cool getting to choose. I think that you know, being able to choose the artifacts that I investigated for these podcasts really allowed me to, you know, follow my passion and be enthusiastic about what I was choosing instead of just being assigned, okay, this is the artifact that you have to do your project on, even if you don't, it doesn't resonate with you, just get it done, you know. So I did appreciate being able to have the choice in which artifact I would choose so I could pick, a, you know, an area that really interests me. You mentioned earlier on that you thought way back in 2009 that you might want to go into theater and that you had a passion for that. Do you think your experience and, and 
love of getting to perform information maybe was an asset for you in this project? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I still, you know, I still have a passion for the arts and I, I do intend on actually starting my own podcast once we get moved and everything. Um, I'm not quite sure which area of history I'm going to focus on for that, but I am starting to do like the brainstorming process. And I do think that even though I'm not playing a character in the podcast episodes, it is still very performative. You know, you get to have the inflection in your voice and be, you know, in a part that's really interesting to you, you can, you know, use inflection to show excitement and get other people excited about it. And that's what I think was really cool about these projects is at the end of it, I was excited to share my final project with my friends, which normally would be like, Oh yeah, I've had a final, whatever. (laughs) It's true. When we take a final, our, it all sort of falls out of our brain later. I was surprised that what I remembered most from finals would be the one or two questions that I missed. And I just had this great relief over the, you know, 98% or whatever it was that I had, I had managed to put down correctly. And I was sort of haunted by the two that I missed. Um, You have a passion for getting knowledge into a place where it's public facing. And it seems to me that theater only works when it's public facing. If no one comes and no one, no one patronizes the arts, they don't flourish. Are there specific lessons that cross over from the public facing skills and passions of the theater to making history more publicly accessible? Yeah. I mean, I, I think accessibility is so important because I feel like so much of history academia focuses on writing or producing work that will be consumed by other historians. Right. But that doesn't actually help a regular person who's not a historian understand what you're talking about. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make it relatable. Yeah. Yeah. Because people will get their information somewhere. And if the people who are trained in it don't make any sense when they speak, you're, you're going to get information from someone else. And yet historians are trained in assessing the source in a way that perhaps lay people are not. And they, yeah. And I think a lot of the times, you know, because we, you know, we write these papers and articles and we make these projects and everything for other people who are really interested in the study of history. It leaves out an entire segment of the population who, you know, we write these things using the historian's language, but that language is honed in the classroom that we've spent hours and hours in and doesn't really make it relatable to anyone else who doesn't have a degree in history. (laughs) So 99% of the U.S. population. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're talking to our bubble and not to all the people who would be interested if only we could sound interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I do see a move towards that. You know, I I think the the history of the study, or let me rephrase that. I think the study of history is going to change in drastic ways in the coming years because, you know, since basically since 2020, I feel like there has been a big push to talk about our real history and how we can reckon with that and how we can move forward from it. Um, So we, we kind of have to make it more accessible so that 
new generations can actually learn the real history, not just the whitewashed version that has been, you know, pumped into most of our public education system for decades, you know? Um, and I, I think it's going to become vital for more people to be able to have access to this information. You talk in your article about how when you first started at, at college, it was really about the non-traditional forms of assessment. It was about speeches, portfolios, slideshow presentations, research papers. Um, and one thing that you want to do now um, and you've just graduated, so you're going to be embarking on it. We can't ask you to predict the future, but um, is to make sure that what you do with your skills is to make it more accessible, specifically to non-academics. Um, have you got ideas in mind for what non-academics you want to reach and, and ways that you might want to be on podcasting? Or is that really what your passion is after having done this class? Well, I I really would like to reach basically anybody who has any interest in learning about history at all. I feel like a lot of people are scared away from studying history because they feel like it's too complicated um, or that there's, you know, a lot of people feel like there's just too many big words and they get lost. And again, that's just us talking to ourselves at that point. But I really think that, you know, my target audience would be just, you know, your next door neighbor, your friend that, you know, you grew up with. Um, and it can really help to start these discussions about how we can reckon with our past and move forward. Um, so I, I would like to make it accessible to anybody. Um, and podcasts do help with that accessibility as well, you know, because not everyone's literacy is, you know, what we would consider the standard and they deserve to learn about these things too. So that's where podcasts become helpful because they can listen, you know. You mentioned um, that there was also a documentary project. Yes, um, that was in another class that I took with Dr. De Silva. Actually, um, <laughs> she's she's great. She was one of my favorite professors that I've ever had. Um, and she, so this was my history two hundred class, and that is we got assigned a person um, from Muncie from Muncie's history, basically um, at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and the documentary that I did, it was a group project and it was about this woman who was the first, one of the first women doctors in Muncie. Um, and basically we started out with one newspaper article that mentioned her getting into a fight with her husband and him, you know, accusing her of threatening to chloroform him. <laughs> and then we had to go from there and find out as much as we possibly could about her life. And, you know, we were never able to find a picture of her face, which still bothers me. <laughs> but we, you know, we were able to find, you know, death certificates and different news articles that talked about her. It basically started like a gossip storm in Muncie that this woman doctor and her husband got divorced. It was so controversial, you know, but um, it was really interesting to really get into the nitty gritty of, you know, the foundations that I learned in that World Civilizations One class. Um, really got to carry over into 200 so that, you know, I can really put that into practice. And then, you know, the artifact in that case wasn't necessarily provided for me. I had to do all of the investigation to find the evidence myself. 
does the school provide funding for these projects? It doesn't seem like the average student has the equipment to make a documentary. Right. Um, well, I, again, I, this is post-COVID at this point. Um, and so I would say Dr. De Silva is probably one of the professors that I had that really latched on to this e-learning and remote schooling and, you know, made the best of it and really still tried to push us to use all of these new resources that we were finding. Um, so we recorded ours on Zoom, actually. The entire documentary you were able to do using Zoom? Yes. So we made a presentation and then narrated it on Zoom. And then you recorded it. That is so cool, the creative use of available technologies, because we think of often with um, documentaries that you need certain types of camera, certain types of audio studios to work in for sound. And you're saying you can use what you have. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And you were able to find all of the um, primary sources, meaning the articles that were written in the time about what was going on, any court records that you needed, et cetera. Are you able to source all of that online? Yes, we had access to the Ball State Historical Archive. Um, you know, we had access, I had access to Ancestry.com also because my mom had a membership. Um, and so I was lucky enough to be able to use that. That's where we got like our death certificates, our marriage licenses, stuff like that. Um, so that was super useful. But I know the Muncie Public Library also has its own ancestry account. So I think other people were able to access it there. It's really amazing to hear about the pieces that you put together to do this. We've heard about how professors pivoted to teaching online and how they went into non-traditional forms of assessment. They said, you know, it's too hard to assign a paper to students who are working from home and dealing with their own conditions and their own fears and concerns. And we need to be more engaging. We need to be more inclusive as a classroom and have people work in groups. Mm -hmm. And so we could hear anecdotally, particularly through social media, what professors were pivoting to do. But hearing from a student student point of view about how did you pull together resources? How did you use what you had? Um, and how did that actually come together? Were you working in a group? Yes, that project, the documentary project was a group. I was in it with uh, two other young ladies, Lauren and, and Elizabeth. Had you met them prior to being in this remote class? No, no. This was um, my first on-campus class, basically, when I on my time coming back to Ball State. So I had never met any of them before. I'm also a non-traditional student, so I'm 10 years older than all of them, um, which was definitely interesting. There were some generational differences there, but, you know, it didn't really cause any problems. It's just we're just in different phases of our lives. And, it, you know, it's sometimes, and I'm not specifically talking about Lauren and Elizabeth. It's kind of my overall experience as a non-traditional student being back on campus. Uh, it's just interesting being, you know, being back in a place where I was when I was 21 and then being in a classroom, being 31 at this point and being with a bunch of other 21 year olds and just realizing like, wow, we have completely different ideas of like what is super important and what um, what actually matters. And, you know, that's not to say that their problems don't matter. It's just, you know, I, I think back to myself at 21 and think about the things that were, I just thought were detrimental. And now 10 years later, not really a big deal, you know? <laughs> Non-traditional learners are in a different life 
phase. Do you, do you have ways of meeting each other on campus since you may not all be in the same class or may not, you may be the only non-traditional learner in your class? Yeah, I mean, it, it just took really participating in class. And, you know, we did a lot of online discussions in a lot of my classes if they weren't on campus too. Um, and, you know, if I had a group project with someone, even if we weren't next to each other, we could still do like a Zoom meeting or something. Zoom has been a huge part of schooling my second time around. <laughs> Building connection and community through Zoom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, but you know, the, the history department at Ball State really is just top notch. And I, I had classes with some really amazing young people um, who are going to do really great things in the field of history or education. There are a lot of, Ball State has a really great teaching department. Also, um, the teacher's college is just amazing there. So, you know, I, a lot of these young people are going to, you know, help change the world of teaching and history. And I'm really excited for that there, you know, there's a lot of really passionate people. And once we all got back on campus, I was really able to kind of form, you know, a little bit of a community in the history department. I, I feel like COVID has made everyone you know, really afraid of getting too physically close to each other. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's, there's a nice community in that department there. You mentioned that you have changed as a person since mm -hmm. 2009 when you first arrived on campus oh, yeah. <laughs> and where you are now in your life phase. But you've also seen a lot of changes in academia itself. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to walk us through the, the positive and negative changes? Sure. Um, I would say that my first experience at Ball State starting in 2009 um, until I think I left there in 2013 um, and or maybe it was 2012. I don't know. What, what day is it even, you know, but <laughs> um, I, one, I, I was having trouble figuring out what I wanted to do, um, but I feel like the old traditional forms of assessment didn't really serve me that well, just with my learning style. Um, and I think that's why it was so hard for me to get into it because I wasn't super interested in just regurgitating information on an essay quiz or on a multiple choice exam, you know, and cause I feel like in that scenario, it's like I would study and study and study and then as soon as I would take the exam, the information would disappear from my brain forever. <laughs> um, and so I just never really felt connected in that same way. And that's not to say I didn't have good teachers. I think it's just that previously academia was geared towards like, these are the things that you do to teach this class. And this is how people can prove that they know it. And that's it. But now... Um, I really feel like there's more of a push towards playing up to those different learning styles for sure. Um, and just having more opportunities to engage in digital components that can help to just push even more information out into the world. And I think that uh, there's more of a goal now too, at least in history academia of making it so that, these projects we're doing, can, you know, we can put them on our CV and actually use it as a 
piece of work and get published and, you know, all of these things. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to do things like um, the Johns Hopkins Maxi Symposium um, with, I think I did, that was the documentary project that I told you about. I was able to present it um, on a panel at that symposium, which, well, it was virtual. So I didn't actually get to go to Baltimore because of COVID, but (laughs) so it's, it's just interesting. Now I feel like there's more of a push where professors want their students to be able to produce work that can apply to the real world. And I think students want that too. They want to know why what they're doing matters. It's hard to have lived through the last few years and not think using the time that you have in a way that you can personally see matters is key. It it sounds like the previous way that you were learning when you had to take tests, when you had to produce something that pleased the professor, um, didn't work for you, partly because you weren't finding that you had ownership of your knowledge and your, and your progress. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that for me. I was trying, I was having a hard time finding the words. <laughs> oh, your words were great. I'm just making notes as I listen and I'm thinking about how that affects pedagogy and it affects relationships, not only inside academia, but outside. When we send students after graduation out to try to tell an employer what their skills are and why they were excited to come for this job interview, um, when you feel ownership of your progress, of your process, you can more naturally translate that to your potential employer than if you said, well, I got good grades and I can always show up on time, which are good things. You, you're, you know, those are good things to say about yourself, but you kind of find yourself giving them a laundry list of why your professors liked you, not why who you are now, having completed a degree, has prepped your brain and your skills to go out in the world and do something that's meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I really think that a lot of my different professors at Ball State, um, we're able to kind of show me how people do history in in different ways than what I thought previously. Um, so it's been a really, really great experience. It's bittersweet that it's over. It's been a decade in the making, you know, <laughs> but I, I really appreciate that, you know, I feel like a lot of the professors at Ball State at least are adapting to the new ways that we're approaching education instead of just staying in the past as I feel like historians are prone to do, but. (laughs) It sounds like when you get settled in Colorado and you start looking for your master's program, you perhaps have a different criteria. Yes. Then you may have thought to have a few years ago that you want active learning, that you want projects that can engage the public, that you want to have ownership of your participation. You want to understand how what you're doing really grows you and takes you beyond this moment, this this semester. But where does it take you from there? Um, I, I'd say that in... My future career, whatever path I decide to go down, who knows, there's too many options at the moment for my brain to even begin to comprehend. But um, I really look forward to creating projects that are accessible. That's I think that's really where my passion is at. 
um, is getting more people engaged in the discussion and making sure that the historical narrative reflects real people um, and not just what someone in a stuffy office wants everyone to think about a subject, you know? Um, and I see my career really moving in a direction where, you know, maybe that's through my podcast or maybe that's, maybe I'll start a YouTube channel um, or whatever I do. I, the main goal I think is going to be to make sure that history is a, a field that can really be the property of everyone. You know, I, I oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, and I, I really, yeah, I really just want to make sure that we all realize like this is ours. It's not just the intellectual property of the historians who write the papers and the articles and the books and everything, but it's it's everyone's intellectual property. Do you feel encouraged that people can dust off those research papers and convert them into something that's public facing? Yeah, if if they wanted to, you know. <laughs> um I I really think that there's a lot of people who are getting on board with it, but you know, there's other people who are going to have to get on board or retire that technology is really the future of the study of history. Um, you know, making videos and sharing them, uploading them to YouTube or making an interactive website where someone can go through a timeline and, you know, see pictures and also have you know, audio playing in the background that explains the pictures and, you know, even just TikTok, the, the amount of historians I follow on TikTok now is amazing, but, <laughs> you know, and I, I think that history, the field of history is going to have to catch up to that. Um, but there are a lot of young historians who are already starting to do things like that. So I'm hopeful that It'll that it alone will make the study of history more accessible. And for yourself in looking for a master's program, it sounds like you want things that you can directly put on your CV mm -hmm. that you created while you were there. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And that's, again, Dr. DeSilva was a huge part. She has helped me develop my CV because just she was one of those people that whenever an opportunity came up, she would email me and be like, hey, do you want to present at Johns Hopkins? Hey, you should do the student history conference at Ball State. Hey, do you want to write this article? You know, so she really opened or maybe not opened the doors for me, but just even showing me the opportunities that are out there that I would I would have never realized there were that many opportunities for someone who is an undergrad to be able to do stuff like that on my own. So it was really great that she, you know, kind of helped guide me towards doing those things because now my CV looks really great. So <laughs> one thing I'm really hearing from you is the importance of having a mentor mm -hmm. who believes in you. Yes. Yes. I and I would say when I first started um, back at school, I still had terrible imposter syndrome. I was like, everyone's going to know I don't belong here. <laughs> and sometime it's going to trip me up and then everyone will know that I'm not actually good at this. Um, but I, I think that her belief in my abilities kind of helped push me out of that and helped me realize that, no, I, I am good at this and I do belong here and I'm, you know, I'm deserving of 
all of the accolades that I get. So <laughs> we're often presented with a false framework that an undergrad degree should be completed in four years. And if you don't complete it in four, um, maybe higher ed is not your calling. It's not where you should be doing your learning. And by you coming back mm-hmm. um, and completing your degree, it pretty much busts that myth wide open. Yeah, I I actually had a teacher in high school um, tell me not to waste my parents' money on tuition for college because I got a D in his class. <laughs> um, and I'd kind of like to find him on Facebook or something and be like, ha ha, look. <laughs> You know, but I think I believed that for a long time. And I think maybe that's why my first go around to college didn't work out is because the imposter syndrome was so strong that I actually started to believe that I didn't belong there. Well, you had an authority figure tell you to believe that. That's yeah. And then you had a different authority figure in this important mentor say, no, I think you should be in this conference. I think you should take this opportunity to write this article. And she saw you completely differently than that high school teacher did. Yes, definitely. Do you think that permission that she kept offering was vital for you finally seeing yourself that way? Oh, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I, I don't know if she'll listen to this or not, but you know, I, I know that teaching and education can often be a very thankless job. Um, <laughs> and you know, there, there are still so many teachers out there doing really important things that it's not even just what they teach us in the classroom. It's also what, you know, the way they make us feel about ourselves. And they actually have a lot of power in that regard. I have parallels to your story. I have a high school teacher. He didn't give me a D, but he humiliated me in front of the class and it was a history class. And when I got to college, I was determined not to take a history class because my most prominent, dominant association with taking a class like that was what had happened to me. So I went to a different campus to take it at summer school where nobody knew me and it, the ghosts of it wouldn't haunt me back to my quote unquote real school. And the professor there took me aside and he said, why are you taking this pass fail? And I said, because I'm really really bad at history. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, it's early days. (laughs) I am really bad at this. My, my only goal is to pass this. And I think the best chance for that is to take it past fail. And he said, you're getting an A and I want to be able to give you that A. And if you take it past fail, I have to give you a P. And I like to be able to give an earned A. And I was like, it's so nice that you don't understand how bad I am at this. The A's not going to hold. And he was just looking at me, you know. Um, and he opened up, I think, maybe one or two more conversations. I've briefly shared this on previous episodes, but I, I don't think it was a one and done conversation. They were in little bits. And by the end of this summer school class at this well-known um, school, but it was not my school, right? <laughs> whatever happened there, you know, kind of what is it? Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, whatever happened on this campus was going to stay there and not follow me back to my quote unquote real school. Um, at the end of it, he, you know, he said, I really hope you will consider history. It is for you um, and you are good at it. Um, and it was about, I think, two years later that I 
declared history as my major. And that was not something that had ever occurred to me was going to be my major. It wasn't for me. My This high school teacher had humiliated me and let me know that publicly in front of all my peers. Um, it's profound what someone can do to take away your your sense of what doors are open. And it's profound what someone can do to point to all these doors and say, yes, open them. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, the power that our words do have, um, you know, and even if we say something negative, I feel like that is still an affirmation, right? <laughs> um, so the the mean things that we say, the the negative things that we say, it's it's a negative affirmation, but it's still an affirmation. And then if we repeat that to ourselves and start to believe it, then it becomes true, right? Did high school you ever imagine that adult you would be looking for a master's degree program? No, no, absolutely not. Um, yeah, no, I, and I, I would have always had an interest in history. Um, I just believed all of the lies that people told me that, oh, well, there's no work in history and, oh, well, you can't do anything with that degree. Oh, well, you're not going to be able to find a job with that. And, you know, I haven't necessarily started my job search yet, so that's to be determined. But I think that it's still important for people to become educated in history. Otherwise, we'll completely lose it. Right. So I, that argument is completely invalid to me. History is very important. It is just as important as any other class, you know, um, and it can tell us a lot about ourselves. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Hmm. I hope this episode sparks that there is a different direction that history academia can move in to make it more accessible to people outside of the field um, and bring more people into the conversation who maybe previously wouldn't have been able to do that. And what do you hope listeners take away? I hope that they take away that, that the field of history is capable of changing. <laughs> um, I, I feel like a lot of people have this preconceived notion that, you know, history is just boring and dry and dull. Um, but I think history is actually really exciting. And finally, what would you say to non-traditional learners or people who have stopped their degree and aren't sure if they can restart it? I would just say to go for it. Um, I, as someone who didn't used to have much faith in my own academic abilities, I proved myself wrong on that. Um, and I think anyone, anyone's capable of that. Just because your first go around didn't work out, um, you know, your motivations change, your, what you think is important changes. Um, and if you don't give yourself a chance to see if anything's changed, then you're right. It hasn't changed. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today, Haley Armagita, and telling us about the benefits of non-traditional assessment and your experience as a non-traditional learner. I'm Christina Gessler, and you're listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.